0: And we're live with JavaScript Air. Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm so excited about this episode. This is gonna be so cool. We're gonna be talking about typed functional programming in JavaScript. And we have some really amazing people here with us today, so I'm really excited. Uh, this is episode number 34. Um, and, yeah, JavaScript Air is fun. Let's go ahead and uh, I'm gonna give a quick shout out to our sponsors uh, who make lots of the cool things about the show possible. So. Uh, First, our premier sponsor, Egghead.io, has a huge library of bite-sized web development training videos. Check them out for content on JavaScript, Angular, React, Node, and much more. Um, Egghead.io is also the host of two free courses about Redux from Dan Evermoff. Find them at egghead.io slash Redux. So, and Dan is here today. Fun stuff. Uh, Frontend Masters is another uh, sponsor, it's a recorded, expert-led workshop with courses on advanced JavaScript, asynchronous, and functional JS, as well as lots of other great uh, courses on front-end topics. Uh, find them on, uh, at frontendmasters.com. And TrackJS reports bugs in your JavaScript before customers notice them, and with their telemetry timeline, you'll have the context to actually fix them. Check them out and start tracking JavaScript errors today at trackjs.com. And WebStorm is a powerful JavaScript IDE working with Angular, React, or Node.js, then you don't want to miss its super-intelligent coding assistance. Use the discount code JavaScriptAir, all one word, uh, the J, the S, and the A are capitalized. Um, so use that code at checkout uh, at jetbrains.com webstorm to get 20% off of your WebStorm personal subscription. Um, I'm gonna add that code to the JavaScript Deals page, uh, the, or the JavaScript Air Deals page, so javascriptaircom deals. Um, and you can find that code there. Uh, And then Trading Technologies is looking for passionate and inventive full stack JavaScript developers who want to work on cutting edge solutions in a collaborative and challenging environment. Go help them build the top choice platform for derivative traders. Alright, sweet, those are our sponsors, I'm so grateful for them. Um, Because this is a live show, and many of you um, are watching live, uh, you can actually interact with us, it's awesome. Uh, so if you go to Twitter and use the hashtag JSR Question, you can ask us questions and at the end of the show we'll uh, go through some of those questions. Um, and then, um, this is a weekly show, so next week we're gonna be talking about mentoring. Um, so I, I get a lot of questions about like, um, people looking for mentors and, and I, I recently got some questions about how you can be a good mentor uh, to kind of solve this problem of people looking for mentors. So I'm really excited about next week's show, How to Be a Mentor, uh, with a couple expert mentors, uh, Colt um, McAnilis, Kim Creighton, uh, Jed Watson, and Teres Mankowski. I'm really excited, it's gonna be great. Um, Cool, so that is that. Let's go ahead and introduce everybody that we have here. We have a couple panelists um, and a bunch of guests. So uh, first, for our panel, we have Dan Abramoff.
1: Hey there.
0: And Brian Lensdorf. How's it going? And Pam Sally.
1: Hello. Uh,
0: great. And I'm your host, Kent C. Dodds. And then for our guests, uh, our distinguished guests, <laughs> we have uh, Jordan Walk. Hey, thank you for having me on. Thank you. And Alfonso Garcia-Caro.
2: Hi there. How are you doing? Thanks for
0: inviting me. Sure, sure. And Phil Freeman.
3: Yeah, Hello. Yeah, thanks for having me on.
0: Yep. And Richard Feldman.
3: Hey, great to be
4: here.
0: Great to have you. This is so awesome. I love, one of the things that I love about JavaScript Air is the amount of perspectives that we can have on the show. Um, And so we have a lot of different people on the show uh, with interesting and unique perspectives um, and backgrounds uh, on the topic of functional uh, typed JavaScript. So let's go ahead and and just kind of get into things Like, actually, I think it would be useful to kind of get an intro to each one of our our guests. So, um, yeah, let's go ahead and do that. Uh, Jordan, do you want to give us a quick intro to yourself, who you are, what you're interested in, and uh, whatever you want to say.
5: Yeah, sure. Um, So, I'm an engineer at Facebook uh, with Dan, and um, I work on uh, product infrastructure. One of the things that we're responsible for was React, and we continue to work on other cool systems like Relay, and uh, React Native, and right now I'm working on a project called Reason, which is relevant to the topic here. Um, and so it's a it's a new front end or a new uh, developer experience on top of the OCaml compiler.
0: Awesome. Yeah, we're definitely gonna chat about that, Alfonso.
2: So hello. Yeah, it's. Uh... I'm, uh, I'm uh, talking from Madrid and, uh, and uh, I'm working at mybazinga.com. I'm very happy that Jordan is here because actually uh, we are working on creating some F-sharp type for RAFQL, this uh, technology created by Facebook, but also the reason I'm here is because I... Oh, um, a... well, uh, Alfonso,
0: um, I yeah. think you're really scratching out really bad. Um, I'm sorry. sorry. Uh, Can you hear me? Okay, yeah, that's yeah, much that's better. better.
2: Okay, sorry. Maybe
0: the micro. So
2: you can hear me now.
0: Yeah, that's yeah, better. Thanks. So,
2: <laughs> so I I'll, I'll start over. I'm I'm working at uh, mybazinga.com, and uh, actually we're doing some uh, um, type providers. F star started providers with uh, GraphQL. So I'm very happy that Joran is here. So I can maybe later I can uh, ask him some questions. And uh, but the reason I'm here is because I developed uh, a Fable, which is a pseudo compiler. Because it's uh, maybe we can talk about that later. But uh, is a, a tool to transform F code to uh, JavaScript using a uh, bevel. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's all for now.
0: Beauty, Beauty. awesome. Uh, Phil?
3: Sure, uh, yeah. So, hi, I'm Phil. Um, I'm based in LA and uh, I work on uh, Haskell code for a living at Awake Networks. Um, and in my spare time, I work on the PureScript compiler. So, I started working on uh, PureScripts about three years ago, just under three years ago. Um, so I, you know, I continue to work on the compiler uh, development tasks, and then also I have some libraries I maintain. I'll pay with the core library development that sort of stuff.
0: Great, thanks for your work, um, and Richard.
3: Hi,
4: I'm Richard. Uh, I write Elm code for a living at NoRedInk. Um, we use Elm for our front end. Uh, I wouldn't say almost exclusively, but the ma- majority of our front end work is in Elm. Um, also, we're hiring. Uh, if you want to do Elm stuff. Um, And uh, I'm also writing the book Elm in Action for Manning Publications, and uh, speaking of our sponsor, Frontend Masters, I'm doing a two-day Elm workshop for them in September. So, excited about all those things, and yeah, really excited to talk about typed FP in JavaScript.
0: Awesome, yeah, Frontend Masters is great. Um, Cool, yeah, so let's get into it. We have a couple of different, like, you all referenced these different uh, things that are, um, like, programming languages that are intended for deployment to the web, right? Um, but we can't actually deploy the, these languages you've talked about to like the browsers of today because the runtimes don't actually support them, and so you transpile or compile those languages into JavaScript uh, that's supported um, like in all the browsers. So um, I want to talk briefly about each one of these different solutions. Um, and, and why they're valuable. I, I think it would be really useful though to start out with um, why is it important for us to, or, or why is it even useful for us to have a different programming language um, for the web? Like, why can't we just use JavaScript? What are the benefits of typed uh, functional uh, language? Anybody can take these.
4: So I'll say reliability. Um, so I mentioned that we use Element at no Ink. We've been using it in production for about a year. Uh, we have about 35,000 lines of Elm code in our code base. Um, in that year, the number of production runtime exceptions we've seen from our Elm code is zero. Like, it has not actually crash at all yet. Um, we have tons and tons of JavaScript runtime exceptions, actually. So we use, uh, first we use Airbrake, now we use Rollbar. But, I mean, that, that tool's job is to catch the things that blow up on our end users from our JavaScript code and not from our Elm code because it hasn't happened yet. Um, and uh, so definitely um, compiling to JavaScript is, uh, is, like, additional overhead over just using raw JavaScript. Um, but I, I do want to make an, a, an important note here, which is that everyone compiles to JavaScript. Everyone yep. does it. Nobody doesn't compile to JavaScript. If you have Babel, you're compiling to JavaScript. If you use, you know, Uglify, you're compiling to JavaScript. So the real question is, uh, to me, not whether you're compiling to JavaScript because you are. I mean, even if you're using JSX, you're compiling to JavaScript. Um, but rather, uh, you know, what what is the gap between what your compi- your target language and uh, and the language you're writing? So certainly there is a higher learning curve to doing something like Elm compared to something like Babel. Uh, but as far as compilation steps go, I think that ship has sailed. Everybody's doing it. Everybody's always going to be doing it forever. I don't think we're ever going to go back to a world where people don't compile to JavaScript.
5: Right. Even totally. if we're writing stock JavaScript today, um, or you know, ES6, not all browsers support it yet. So we're going to always have um, you know, some modern standards compliant version of JavaScript that compiles into older JavaScript for older browsers.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I uh, I know that like uh, for some people they're thinking, oh sweet, once once ES6 ships in all the browsers that I have to support, then I can stop. But like honestly, there will always be features of the language that you want to use, and and even beyond that, like just like you said, Richard, you're always going to be uglifying your code. Like, uh, yeah, it's it's kind of a given. You're gonna you're gonna have a build uh, chain, and and why not just stick a you know a typed functional language. Uh, Compiler in there in in that build chain.
5: I think it's a good question, but I also think um, you know three or four years ago it would um, it would that that phrasing of the question would make a lot more sense. But increasingly lately, I would almost kind of subvert that question a little bit, turn it around, and ask why would you uh, program in JavaScript today? Um, because the options out there. Um, they're immense. There's so many different ways for you to program in the language that you want and then target JavaScript. I think the question now is increasingly becoming if you could choose any language that you wanted, why would you choose JavaScript to target the browser? And there's some good reasons for that, but um, it's not exactly clear anymore.
0: Yeah, actually, just in response to to that, like, I I know that lots of people's resistance to using anything outside of JavaScript is the um, um, like just the sheer knowledge base of the the broader JavaScript community, there are so many people in the world who know JavaScript, um, and there are very, few, like so many fewer people who know uh, PureScript, or Elm, or F-sharp, or Reason, whatever, um, and so I think that's one uh, one reason why people are hesitant uh, to learn it, because uh, suddenly the, the stuff that they're learning makes them maybe a touch less marketable, um, you know, at getting um, you know jobs at, at places that are already doing JavaScript, and then from like the company standpoint, uh, they might be afraid to adopt these kinds of things because it makes it harder for them to find uh, potential employees.
5: Yeah.
6: So I want to backtrack to Richard's original statement in terms of everyone compiles JavaScript because I wanted to remind us that polyfills exist and that there is such a thing as not using a compiler. So, like, using a compiler is a different step than doing, say, I mean, this is a thing of, you know, we've kind of stepped away from this as an industry, but it is a thing that you can still do, and polyfill features, uh, if, you know, if you can write it in ES5, and your compiler is uh, compiling down to that, then theoretically you can write a polyfill for that feature. Um, you or you can use someone else's polyfill.
7: Not all JavaScripters, is that what you're saying?
6: <laughs> maybe.
5: <laughs> there's some challenges with uh, like new JavaScript language features, new semantic features like LET and const that uh, if you were to send them to older browsers, they would just crash when the page loads. Um, True. so there's That's but there is some one. like relationship between like maybe classes and stuff like that. You can maybe polyfill those.
4: Mm-hmm. And I, I would, I would note that uh, even people who polyfill, typically, I mean, I, I'm not aware of anyone who doesn't minify their code, you know, uh, in production, unless they're working on, like, a toy app or something like that. Like, people who, it, it seems like, uh, and maybe this is my ignorance, but uh, my impression is that basically everybody has some compilation step or other. They're just varying degrees of invasive.
6: Sure. There you go with that.
7: So I wanted to throw a quick question out there. Um, I think this is, you know, a burning question of a lot of people I work with and people who are skeptical of typed functional languages. What um, can the types save you from? You mentioned there's not a lot of runtime errors, um, and I think a lot of people think if they write a test, that will cover a lot more ground than a type could. Um, So I'm curious. uh, In particular, you know, PureScript has a lot of, Constraints you can lay on the types. I'm not as familiar with Elm, but I think it also has those. Um, so I was curious what you can catch or what type of things you're catching with types. Uh,
3: yeah, so um, like I said, you know, PureScript has uh, PureScript has quite quite a few sort of interesting type system features that sort of designed to uh, help you catch a lot of stuff at compile time, right? A lot of different types of bugs at compile time. Um, and then you know, you have like Haskell and GHCJS, like you know, even further towards the sort of um, very strongly typed into the spectrum and, and, you know, different languages that, you know, lie along the spectrum. Um, but for me, I think, like, you know, for sort of power to weight ratio, it's sort of the, it's the really simple type system features that, like, give uh, you the most, you know, that, that are the most interesting, right? So, in, in Haskell, we have something like new types. Your script has something similar, and this, you know, this allows us to do uh, distinguish between things like do I have a string that represents a phone number versus do I have a string that represents an email address or something, or different types of string, and just to sort of categorise them in different ways so I can't, you know, mix them up. At you know, at compile time, I, I I will be told if I've mixed up a phone number and an e- email address or something. Right? Um, another good example of that I think is like uh, you know units of measure or something, which is like maybe not simple from an implementation point of view, but like conceptually simple that we you know I want to say okay this number represents you know seconds or something versus like kilograms or something. Type system, so yeah, there's sort of all the all these sort of very interesting type system features which can be to assert sort of much more mm-hmm. interesting things. But it's the sort of simple stuff that's really interesting, I think. As well.
2: So sorry, just uh, coming back uh, to the first uh, Ken's question about the why to compile to JavaScript. I think some years ago it was the uh, most of the times the answer to that question was that the JavaScript was not a mature language, so you need a language with uh, more features, like, uh, I don't know, for example, at the moment, CoffeeScript. But the, right now, uh, JavaScript is uh, very mature. You have these tools like uh, Bevel to, to tr- uh, transpile new features to old JavaScript that uh, can run in all browsers. Uh, so I think, it, for example, for me, the reason to, to develop Bevel it was not uh, because I didn't like JavaScript. I actually love JavaScript. I think it's more like a, 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 I, I, I like to think of JavaScript as a platform like uh, we talk about the JVM the Java virtual machine so it's and and now it's incredible the ecosystem is incredible the community is incredible the the tools are awesome it's not only the browser you have node you have uh, github electron you have also react native for do uh, not this also not like a few tools and uh so it's incredible it's, it's, it's a place where you want to be i think i, I love f sharp i love the the language the community the tools so it's uh, I just wanted to, to be there, so that's the reason for me. And uh, trying to reply very quickly to uh, Brian's answer, I think it's, um, it's also very it's a, a, a very long debate, and I think it's very difficult to, to settle it down uh, uh, with a couple of words, that the uh, dynamic programming versus uh, type programming. I think it's uh, because y- you get used to something, so uh, I heard always uh, of people that uh, love dynamic programming that it takes a, a lot of time to, to, to define your domain model with types. But I think it's true with a uh, language like uh, Java or C Sharp that uh, uh, they are very verbose to define the types. But uh, it's, uh, it's uh, with language like uh, Elm or Haskell or uh, PureScript, I think it's much easier to define the types. And for me, of course, you, you need to get used to that. The, the types drive you to the, to the right path. So it's, you first define your mind model. And uh, especially we need a uh, very lightweight to do so. And then later you can just let the types Drive you. If that makes sense.
3: <laughs> yeah, I was interested about what you said about you know uh, JavaScript as a platform. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I mean, it, I mean, it's actually quite a good platform, right? It's a compiler author, and uh, if you want to have a compilation target, it's you know JavaScript has its issues as a compilation target, but it's, uh, you know for functional languages, it's actually quite nice, right? You know, the fact that we have uh, you know first order functions and all these things, and uh, you know. Nice lightweight abstraction mechanisms makes it actually quite a good target for compiling functional language. So, um, and sort of going back to uh, you know somebody asked sort of uh, why would we compile to JavaScript? Um, and Richard, you know, you said everybody compiles to JavaScript. So I think uh, it's not really um, a question anymore why you would compile to JavaScript, but sort of where along the spectrum you want to sort of choose the language you want to compile to. Right? And uh, yeah, um, which is why you know. As you're choosing these languages, you know it's uh, interesting. It's interesting to think how they use JavaScript as a platform, right? Like how the inter, how good the interoperability is, um, and sort of uh, how how free uh, how much freedom we have to sort of mix and match uh, together our sort of compiled code. Right? Like, can I take sort of code compiled by PureScript and mix it together with Babel code or, or different uh, different compilation output? Yeah.
4: So to get back to um... Brian's question of uh, you know, sort of what do types get you on top of tests? Uh, here, here is how I see it. Um, there's sort of a spectrum, and uh, and it's a spectrum of guarantees. And what these guarantees get you is, in particular, when you're debugging or refactoring, answering the question, um, what is and is not possible here. Like, what does this code do? So at The the one end, you have tests. And so a test will tell you, if you run your test suite, you can say certain things about your code. So you're trying to hunt down a bug, and you're like, where could this bug be? And potentially, it could be in any part of your program. So your tests tell you, okay, this part, it's not this. It's not this. It's not this. it's not. Each case that you've enumerated, you can say, these tests tell me that the bug is not here. Okay, so then let's say you add on a layer of type checking, uh, so like TypeScript. So now it's going to tell you, okay. so my problem is not a type mismatch between these things. Like at this point, this value has this type. So you've narrowed it down even further on top of your tests. Um, You can take that one step further beyond that, and say, okay, not only do I have that, but also I have these things are constants, and these things are immutable. So now I know that not only do these things have these particular types and these particular tests, but also they can't be mutated. So these values that are in this function at this time, they can't have changed as a result of other functions being called because they're immutable, because they're constant. And then even one step further beyond that, is saying, okay, not only do I have all of those guarantees, but also I have the guarantee that these functions are not doing side effects that are potentially impacting other parts of my program, and so that whole spectrum, each of those things gives you different guarantees, and so the the immediate one is, you know, the type checking, and you can get that from like TypeScript, right? So, uh, but this is a a, a panel about. Um, Maybe panel's the wrong word. (laughs) This is a show about uh, typed functional programming, right? So I think um, there's an important distinction between just adding a type checker and uh, also changing the design of the language itself to rule out additional different things. So like, I I don't know as much about um, Fable or Reason, but I do know that in both PureScript and Elm, if you look at a function and it says, this is a function that takes a string and returns an int, um, I know a lot of things about that. I know, you know, just from that one line of code that's like 12 characters worth of code, I can say, okay, this function only accepts strings, it does not accept null, it does not accept undefined, it doesn't accept lists, it doesn't accept anything like that, just a string, and it only returns it. doesn't return, you know, things with decimals, doesn't return objects, doesn't return null, doesn't return undefined, and it doesn't, uh, run any side effects, it's not going to touch its argument, it's not going to mutate that argument, it's not going to mutate anything else. I can know all of these things just from like 12 characters of code, and when my entire code base is covered in these things, the debugging experience is just completely unrecognizable from JavaScript, where you're like, okay, what does this function do? Well, let me read the entire implementation and go read all the tests just to figure out something that I can get in Elber PureScript in like 12 lines of type annotation. So, that's the big
3: benefit for me.
5: Yeah, and uh, in, in describing that, um, it kind of sounds like really restrictive. Oh, you, this only takes a string. It can't take an int. But um, but all of these languages that we're talking about today, Elm, PureScript, OCaml Reason, um, they also provide these mechanisms for you to express what could be accepted. Like it either takes an int or it takes a float or it takes a string, and you model that and express that. So you can expressively describe what is taken, not just what it, what isn't accepted by a function.
0: So I, I think this m- reminds me of the, I don't even know who to attribute this to, but there's the quote, uh, tie your hands to free your mind. Um, and I think that kind of is the the whole mantra of functional programming and and like immutability and, and all, all of this is that like, sure, you're kind of giving up a little bit of freedom or, or you know, liberty to kind of do whatever you want, but what's nice about that is everybody else is giving up that same freedom and liberty, and so when you go to look at somebody else's code, um, you like it, you have to hold less in your head, and, and that's one of the things that we're always fighting for uh, when we're developing applications is like, I, I only have so much space for state in my head, and the less I have to keep in my head to maintain this code base, the better.
5: Yeah, I totally agree.
6: I feel like that's such a weird phrase, Kent. <laughs> um. Like I guess I don't. I guess there's somewhere where I disagree with types being a limitation because I think what you're trying to describe with that phrase is constraint-based programming, which is like a thing I've heard people talk about, uh, and I'm not sure if that has a relationship to types. Um, so I, because I, 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 would even disagree so far as to say that um, using a type system is codifying a thing that you were doing anyway, like when you wrote, like, you know, choosing the simplest example, when you wrote a function add, you expected to hand it a number. You didn't necessarily expect to hand it a string. And so types are a way for you to codify the thing that you were already trying to express, which is not really a constraint. It's actually being more explicit about what you mean.
0: Right, I agree that it's, like, it's more explicit, but there are, um, like, you, in functional programming and in typed programming, you do ha- have constraints. Like, that's that's part of the whole idea, is uh, this idea of constraints, um, you know. Can you, you
6: expand on that, though? Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: So, like, I'll take an example of functional programming. You, um, part of the, the idea of functional programming is no side effects. And so, if uh, you have uh, something that takes some arguments and then you wanna make a call out to the DOM, well, you can't do that because uh, in functional programming, that's the side effect. That's, you know, you're breaking out of the constraint. Um, and so, in that sense, you're tying your hands. You can't do as much as you could before with just regular JavaScript. But by doing that, you're giving yourself uh, some guarantees that are, like, really valuable, so you're, you have to think about less. Um, that's kind of what I mean by tie your hands to free your mind.
6: Okay. Yeah, I think that helps.
3: As a producer of libraries, it can, it can sort of seem like um, it's, like, burdensome to have to uh, satisfy all these constraints, right? But the converse is that, you know, as a consumer, of somebody trying to use a library, you know, good types should also serve, you know, those constraints should also serve as a documentation tool, right? And uh, mm-hmm. if I, you know, like Richard said, if I see a function from string to end um, and somebody else wrote that function, it's in some other library, I, I know exactly how I should be expected to use that. I, I know how, you know, I, I can expect it to work if I uh, if I use it in, in the right way. Um, yeah, so types I types think can serve a good documentation, uh, serve as a good documentation tool.
7: I should throw out there that uh, if you haven't, if you're not familiar, you can actually constrain things with your types as well, like say, you know, in your script by example, you constrain um, functions that are partial or total, or you, you add um, type constraints in there, so uh, they're kind of related too.
0: Yeah, Richard, you can go ahead and bring up hiring if you want. <laughs>
4: Yeah, uh, so so I just wanted to respond earlier. Kent, you mentioned um, that there are different reasons that people choose different languages to compile JavaScript, and uh, and one of the big attractions of JavaScript uh, as, as sort of or JavaScript or languages that are very close to JavaScript like Babel or like CoffeeScript um, is the huge ecosystem of libraries as well as the huge knowledge base. Um, whereas, yeah, not nearly as many people know Elm, no PureScript, no Fable, no Reason, uh, or OCaml. Um, and uh, in comparison. So, um, and you mentioned two things about that. Uh, one is that um, you might uh, have people being reluctant to sort of take the plunge and, and try this new thing that's sort of untested and, and has a much smaller community. And two is you might have trouble hiring people. Um, the second thing is, is interesting to me because we, we now have a good bit of data on that. Um, so, by far, the most effective tool we've had for hiring front-end people is using Elm. I'm not kidding. Like, before that, we we went almost two years without making a front-end hire because it's just so hard to find good front-end people. Ever since we started using Elm, it's almost like people are beating down our door to work here. Like, people want to use good tools, and good people want to use good tools even more. Um, and so the fact that we're able to say, I mean, we can practically just show up to a conference and say, hi, we use Elm in production and we're hiring, and people want to work here. Um, and it's, it's really uh, surprising because you would think that, oh, well, there's a much smaller number of people who know Elm out there, and that's true, but there's a lot of people who want to learn it and who want to use it because they're intrigued by it and so we don't expect anyone to know elm on day one but it's you know doesn't take that much to learn believe it or not if you're surrounded by people who know elm um (laughs) or if you're reading a a, you know a a good book on it like Elm in action shameless plug um (laughs) but but it's it's really true that you know as counterintuitive as it might seem if you're trying to hire good people um you know, being able to say that you're using a really awesome technology is a huge selling point and, and makes you, your company really stand out from the crowd. That's a good point.
2: So, yeah, I like to point out that um, uh, Phil and Richard have been talking about the yeah the side effects you can also, as well. I think we, we should uh, distinguish between uh, a pure functional language, it's like a, a, this language is coming from Haskell and uh language maybe in this case i think reason as well as uh sharp they, they both come from uh, ocaml so it's uh, an impure uh, functional programming language so it means that uh, it allows you to do this kind of side effects and and uh, even for fable for example you can even do uh, dynamic programming. so f sharp would say that it's a functional first uh, language but it's not uh, you can apply different uh, paradigms if uh, you need it to so it's the same way as when uh, we are talking about dynamic programming that uh, you say no, no, I-, I want to do things very quickly. I don't, I don't want to to spend time uh, do- uh, creating my domain model. So in this case, it's more or less the same. It's, it's the is the middle step. But uh, uh, you think that uh, maybe sometimes you need to access the DOM and uh, you need to mut- mutate something. So it's good that uh, you have this feature. But I completely agree with uh, with uh, Richard and Phil that. Uh, if uh, you take this this job and the, you decide to go to the uh, completely pure language, I think it's uh, the chances that you'll get uh, errors in the runtime time are much less, yeah.
7: I just wanted to, um, and that's totally right. It's good to know about the distinction there. And um, I think onboarding or, or learning the language is, is pretty difficult, especially in a pure setting. Um, and uh, one of the hardest things is to actually understand what the compiler is trying to tell you or know how to, to fix these kind of random type errors. Uh, does anybody can anybody speak to how to learn a, uh, a language like a, a, you know a typed functional language that might be totally different from what they're used to?
6: Do you mean, so, Brian, what is your question, like, where are some suggestions for someone to start, or maybe even just people sharing their personal experience?
7: Yeah, coming from a dynamic JavaScript language where they just kind of throw some arguments at a function and it writes to the screen, like, you know, how do you how do you start learning? Um,
5: I think if, if you've never used a type system before, uh, something like Flow, um, which is one of the things that our team builds um, for JavaScript, eases you into the, the notion of types, and, and, um, and it kind of does that gradually. It's not going all in at once. Um, but if you wanted to do that, I think Elm has a great reputation for um, being very noob-friendly and that developer experience of getting on board um, is just really seamless, and um, I think it could be a great way to try sort of the complete picture, assuming you don't have side effects in anything.
2: Yeah, I think Elm has set the standard for uh, compiler friendly uh, message, yeah. <laughs> friendly compiler mm-hmm. message, sorry. Yeah, actually there's a, there's a movement now in the F# community to make the compiler messages more friendly and uh, we have
5: uh, Elm as the as yeah. the, the goal to go, yeah. And I think that um it's not like uh when you go when you dive into one of these languages like either Haskell, Elm, PureScript, OCaml, Reason, it's not like um you've you've gone in this one direction and and, oh no, I've kind of strayed from these other languages. It's gonna take a lot of work to go learn the other ones. That's not the case. It's actually, um, once you learn one of these ML derivatives, they are all they all kind of come from the same family of programming languages. Once you learn one, um, learning the next one is just really easy, because you can relate like uh, a concept in one to the other instantly.
0: I think that's actually been one of my fears, um, and so I'm glad that you mentioned that, Jordan. Like. Uh, to be perfectly honest, I totally love you know the the idea of a type system. I love the idea of functional programming, but I've yet to actually jump into it because um, there's a little bit of decision um, like FOMO going on there. Like I, I worry which one should I really pick, um, and also like it's a matter of um, you know how do I find the time to learn this stuff? But like when I'm not doing it on the job, like I I can't convince my boss to let me build something new in a language I've never used before, and so like finding the time to do that. Um, but yeah, I'm really glad that you mentioned, you know, you just kind of learned one of these, um, and, and you mentioned ML-based ba- languages. If you could actually kind of define that for us, that'd be really helpful.
5: Sure. Right, were, you, were you saying that you have um, typed functional JavaScript fatigue? <laughs> That's right, yeah. Um, yeah, so so um, you can, like, look up on Wikipedia the, the history of um, ML and, uh, and OCaml and Haskell, and you can see that these things have been these languages have been around for decades, really, and um, these ideas and and the implementation of the type systems have been around for a really long time, and um, they're all kind of taking inspiration from each other, and the the history is more complicated than a lot of people um, kind of describe, but to reduce it down to a simple story, you have this ML family of languages from which Haskell and OCaml, um, and then eventually Elm and PureScript all kind of derived from um, Phil might be a better person to, to speak to that.
3: Um, I think one thing that's sort of uh, quite important about ML is um, the fact that we have type inference for for all our terms, right? So um, I think some people have sort of a bad perception of types of languages in general, just because they're used to type systems where they have to write quite most types on all of the expressions. Um, but one of the benefits of, sort of ML and, and the ML family of languages, of course, is that you know we don't have to do that. The, the compiler um, we, we still have to sort of make sure our programs are correct, but the compiler will do that without having to write type annotations, which is you know, um, really not really powerful,
1: right? Yeah, uh, I just wanted to jump in and ask something. So Kent mentioned uh, a good point about like uh, not knowing how to start with a type language or something like this. Uh, and uh, what I found is that... Uh, for example, like, uh, when I was learning React, the reason I learned it well and was able to apply it is because I was able to take one component in my app and use React there and figure out if it works well for me. So I think uh, I'd like to ask uh, different panelists uh, who are like, working on different languages, uh, what is your story for integration with uh, existing JavaScript apps? And can you use these languages uh, together uh, in, in JavaScript applications?
5: I think, I think that this is why compiling to JavaScript is such a powerful idea, um, because... You left us hanging.
7: Uh,
6: oh no, okay, uh, exactly Jordan, right. I, okay. You sent it on because, okay. <laughs> and then it went um, silent.
5: <laughs> okay, uh, I was gonna say, um, one of the benefits of having uh, an impure uh, functional languages uh, Alfonso mentioned this, um, is that you can more easily interact with other implementations of libraries that are also impure, like most JavaScript libraries. And then those invariants that you're keeping in your head about purity, you don't have to be as careful about that, so that is one strength of something like um, OCaml, Reason, or F-sharp, I feel.
4: So uh, Elm, actually, coincidentally, the top, Um, blog post on the Elm website's uh, blog is actually about doing this, like specifically with React. It's like, here's how to embed Elm programs in your React programs. Um, And the reason for this is that this is basically, the the title of the post is How to Use Elm at Work. Um, And because it's like, this is the success story. Um, When people successfully start using Elm at Work, it's by doing exactly that. Like you have a big JavaScript code base and you introduce a very small bit of Elm for just like one part of one thing. And then once you get that in production, you're like, oh, okay, that went well, let's let's try expanding it, let's try expanding it. Um, everybody's intuition seems to be, uh, let's wait for a big rewrite, like, oh, we're going to do this huge project, we're going to do it, oh, always it like, almost always fails. I mean, it's, it's like a recipe for disaster. It's much better to just do a small thing. Um, so uh, to Jordan's point about... Um, you know, you, you're you working in this, like, Elm is purely functional, no side effects, uh, JavaScript is full of side effects, how do you reconcile those two? So the way that Elm interops with JavaScript um, is through a system called Ports, and it's basically like you talk to JavaScript like the same way that you talk to a server, which is to say you send data over, and then you get data back. And the nice thing about data is that data doesn't involve side effects. So there's no actual code sharing, so you can't actually mess up your invariants that way. Um, there's nothing to worry about there. Uh, uh, so except...
1: Sorry, is that mechanism synchronous?
4: Is it synchronous? No, it's asynchronous. Just like cl- talking to a server. Um, so the metaphor is, is is like very strong with like talking to a server, except that there's no network traffic. It's just like you know you're all in the same memory, but you design it exactly the same way as as you talk to a server. Um, And so what that means is that when you want to, it's sort of like, uh, you can either think of it as like JavaScript as a service when you're writing an Elm app and you want to go use a JavaScript library, um, or you can do it the other way around and be like, oh, I have some JavaScript code I want to introduce Elm, let's just drop Elm as a service in, um, and then expand from there. Um, and so uh, we, that's exactly how we got it started at Norad Inc. And, and now Elm has taken over our front end code base. Like it used to be just 0% Elm like a year and a half ago. And now it's like the second biggest language in our repo after Ruby, which is our back backend. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's I, I think the way to go is to start small.
2: So, yeah, I, I want to extend what uh, Richard said. And uh, yeah, I think there is also a design choice when uh, you are making a, a tool to compile the, from another language to JavaScript, the, how to interact with JavaScript. And uh, and I think you have these uh, uh, two extremes. Like uh, you have Elm, that you have this uh, protective barrier that uh, will save you up, uh, many errors at one time. And then you can just um, interact directly with JavaScript. So, for example, in Fable, you can do dynamic parameters there's nothing that is protecting you from the impurity of uh, of uh, javascript I think this is also coming because uh, f was a language uh, designed to to interact with uh, c sharp with the dot net platform the, the same way that scala it was uh, designed to interact with the java uh, java platform so it's a functional language but it's in the fact that uh, you have to interact with uh, uh, imperative or impure code so it gives you tools to do that and um and if also many of the design choices I had to make, I I, I had to acknowledge two facts: that the first, that the, I'm not very clever, and second, I'm I'm very lazy. So <laughs> I, I'm very surprised by by Elm because Elm has everything: It has the architecture, has tools, has its own package management system. But I cannot do those all these things. So I'm uh, I want to integrate very uh, very easily with the, all the tools that the, the awesome tools that are already in the in the JavaScript community. So we have uh, interaction with uh, Webpack, with uh, Bevel, of course, and uh, with React, as well. We, we have some uh, uh, some nice helpers, but a very, very thin layer with React. And, uh, and for that, of course, you have to trade uh, safety for convenience. But uh, yeah, this uh, I, I don't know much about the uh, script, maybe. And, and Reason, of course. Reason, I'm assuming that it's more or less the same approach as, uh, as, uh, as FSR, but I may be wrong. So if Phil and uh, Jordan can uh,
5: clarify that. I think it would be helpful to to clarify a little bit um, more about what Reason is right now. So Reason is basically improving a lot of the the common complaints about the OCaml compiler and making it more friendly to JavaScript and front-end developers. Um, And the first complaint is always syntax. So so what we're doing is we're making the syntax more approachable to uh, JavaScript developers, web developers, front-end developers. And then we're also integrating, um, to your point, We're also working on integrating the package manager and the build system with NPM and all the tools that JavaScript developers are very familiar with. And uh, so one of the things you can do right now, which is sort of like the extreme of what you were describing, Alfonso, is uh, if you NPM install Reason, um, the GitHub URL right now, it will install the compiler tool chain, it will install the syntax parser, the the formatter, editor plugins, and everything, and it will recompile it on the host so you have a full native compiler right there, um, installable via npm, um, and uh, pretty soon we'll also have the JavaScript compiler installed as a result of that. And one of the one of the reasons why Reason kind of stands out here, um, and maybe actually F Sharp and and
0: oh no, Jordan fell out again.
5: Is that the, uh, I'm here? Is that the uh, the language isn't just a compiled to JavaScript language, but it's also a full native programming language that can produce uh, native executables. So, um, what we want to do is, even though we're we're integrating with the JavaScript ecosystem and all the tooling like npm, we still want to allow people to produce native binaries. That's awesome. <laughs>
0: Do you want to talk about PureScript, Phil? Uh, yeah, sure. So, um, so the approach, um, the approach to the foreign function space, which is what we call it, the way we talk to JavaScript in PureScript is a little different from um, from what Richard described, um, where you have sort of JavaScript in this, you, this sort of, you know, in Elm, you
3: have this sort of message passing to, uh, uh, you know, this this essentially JavaScript service written in Elm, if you like. Um, so, in, in PureScript, uh, the way the way you interpret Interop with javascript is that uh, basically we just compile to common js modules and a compiled pscript resource is just a regular common js module that you can just drop in alongside other you know, compiled uh common js modules and just use them you know, hopefully seamlessly um, so you know that's quite expressive possibly like you know too expressive in a sense because you, know, you can do um, you can pull in arbitrary common js modules and, and use them or you can compile to CommonJS and uh, you have to be careful that you know the types line up when you when you start using these things with JavaScript, right? So uh, aside from sort of the importance of uh, you know it's really important for a foreign function space to be really expressive, I think, and complete, and allow you to sort of say everything you want to say. But it's almost more important for it to be like really principled, so that when you use the foreign function space, you sort of you can carefully sort of reason about how. Uh, how to use it and make sure that, you you know, when you don't have types on the JavaScript side that you're not going to mess things up and, you know, you're talking to PureScript or or whatever in the right way. Um, So that was sort of one of the uh, really important design considerations for me. i would come from TypeScript, um, and I think that's sort of one thing they do really well in TypeScript, they have these definition files um, for for lots of libraries, and you can just start, um, you can start using these libraries and you can compile your TypeScript and it just becomes a regular JavaScript module, and that was something I wanted to emulate.
0: Yeah, that's great.
4: Um,
3: One more note uh, to
4: uh, mention uh, uh, based on what Alfonso said. Um, So you noted that uh, Elm has its own package manager, uh, which is true. Um, And it's not just because Elm wants to just like be cool and hip and and, like do something other than NPM. So you can NPM install Elm, the compiler itself. Uh, Just NPM install dash g Elm and then you're good. Um, but what he was referring to is that uh, Elm's uh, library ecosystem does have its own package manager, and the reason for that is that it actually um, puts uh, guarantees on, the, on those packages, specifically about semantic versioning. Um, so if I write a package and I release it as version 1.0, and then I make some breaking change, like I change the way some function looks or I delete a function or something like that, and I try to publish that as a minor or patch uh, version release, the package manager will actually reject that. It'll say, no, you made a breaking change, you have to increment the major version number. Um, So the result of that is that semantic versioning is actually guaranteed across all packages in the ecosystem, Um, which is pretty cool because it also means that when you do your constraint solving, um, so like an NPM, when you install a module, you get all of the dependencies that come with it. Um, And so that can result in sort of an explosion of lots and lots of different things. Uh, So Elm does it differently, where instead it says, okay, each, when you say I depend on uh, this version range, it will actually just download one copy of each library, and it'll just find versions that fit with all of your different libraries. So you actually get a really small footprint even when you have lots of dependencies, because Even if they're using the same module, it'll just find versions that they can all talk to one another with. Um, So you get a much smaller uh, sort of footprint. Um, But yeah, uh, but basically uh, the reason that it's able to do that reliably is because semantic versioning is respected. And if if it were not respected, um, and if it were not guaranteed, then uh, it would be pretty easy to have that constraint solver result in things that uh, were actually incompatible, even though they claimed that they would be compatible. So there is a good reason for it having its own package uh, manager.
0: Yeah, that sounds pretty, pretty
2: awesome, awesome. Yeah. So just a very quick note, sorry that the, uh, yeah, it's, it's also incredible that Elm has this uh, even pure packages and warranties and in the packages. And uh, Phil mentioned about the type uh, type declarations in TypeScript. And uh, just uh, quickly mentioned that the also Fable is, uh, we have a parser to translate these uh, declarations to uh, F-sharp. Uh, some manual is also necessary, and in the last version this is also not something I've done myself completely, but I'm using Bevel and uh, Bevel plugin, but uh, we are also generating uh, these declarations in our code, so if you want to uh, interact with uh, uh, code generated by uh, Bevel with uh, TypeScript or with JavaScript with uh, uh, editor like Visual Studio Code, it's also possible to do in a type way.
0: Yeah, I think I'm glad that Dan asked that question earlier about interop with uh, like our current applications because I think that's like a must-have for any of these languages. Um, you know, people can't just just like you said, Richard. Anybody who thinks that they can rewrite in a new language is wrong. Uh, <laughs> so cool. Uh, we we are coming down on our time, um, but if there anybody else has something they want to uh, just mention before we go to Twitter
5: questions, now is the time. Jordan, you you can go if you like. OK, well, I was just going to say um, uh, one of the things that we have, um, one of the things that Reason can do pretty well right now is compile the JavaScript with a couple of different backends. Uh, right now, there are two existing backends, JavaScript of OCaml, JS of OCaml, which can take a very uh, almost perfect representation of your program that could run anywhere on like, an, as a native app, and then deploy that into JavaScript in the browser. But then there's also a new project that's coming out there that I think people should, uh, should take a look at called BuckleScript. And Reason works with BuckleScript as well, and what that gives is a more direct module-to-module mapping and and a way to directly invoke any JavaScript library um, and be well typed across the boundary. Um, So uh, you guys should check out BuckleScript as well.
0: Sweet, so many things to look at. Uh, Hopefully, we'll get all these things in the show notes so people can check them out. Um, great, so let's go ahead and, uh, I don't think that we'll have time to get into all of the Twitter questions, um, but uh, let's, let's try to do this uh, as quickly as possible so that we can at least uh, mention resources or something for these people who are asking and interested. Um, so, um, yeah, let's see. Eric Rasmussen asks, if starting from scratch, like untyped JS, um, should I go with TypeScript or Flow or something else? You should go with Elm. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, it, what what are the, like, what, what would be a good thing for somebody who hasn't really jumped into type, uh, typed languages or, or functional programming? Um, if they wanted to add something to an existing application, what would be, like, where would be a good place to start? Should they just go all typed functional, or should they just start adding a couple types here and there?
4: Uh, I, I mean, my personal advice would be, I mean, uh, Obviously, uh, I'm going to say you should use Elm, but <laughs> um, I, I would think of it less as uh, trying to gradually convert your program to typed, uh, a, as much as picking some part of your program and saying, "How can I make this one part of my program as nice as possible?" Um, and so that's that's sort of what's worked well for us is just saying, like, "Let's let's make this one thing even in a different language, or even just saying, let's let's make this one part typed, um, what have you." But uh, as I said earlier. Um, I think there, there's kind of a spectrum, and typing is only one part of it. I mean, the, the typed functional is, uh, for me, more important than the typed. Uh, there are a lot of people who, uh, like for example, um, if you ask me, would I rather use Closure Script or TypeScript? Um that's, that's not, you know, I, I obviously like type checking, but um, I, I can easily see myself answering ClojureScript because ClojureScript is awesome with immutability and concurrency and all sorts of different things um, that, that TypeScript wouldn't get me. So I don't, I don't know if, uh, you know, the typed part of the typed functional is necessarily the, uh, the sort of the end-all, be-all, even as much as I do like it in the context of L. So my two cents.
7: Yeah, I wanna wanna throw in there that when you're doing functional programming, it all comes down to composition. Uh, You're not setting state to uh, tie things together. You're just passing one value to the next function, typically. So the types really shine there. So if you're using types in an object-oriented setting, it might not shine as much as it would in a functional setting, so they do go together quite a bit.
0: That's great. Thanks for mentioning that. I, I actually was hoping to get into that. We never did. So that's good. Good to know. Um, uh, I lost the question, oh yeah. So from Emilio uh, Sro- Srogo, um, this person asks, uh, Brian's prof- uh, Professor Frisbee videos show that with discipline, predictable, uh, effective, or effect free JS can be written. Can that replace typed languages? So for those who aren't familiar, uh, Brian Lundsdorf is amazing and has this really awesome uh, series of videos on YouTube called Professor Frisbee that talks about functional programming in JavaScript. Um, and in there, it it shows, you know, that if you exercise a little bit of di- uh, discipline, you get a lot of these benefits of functional programming. Uh, can that replace these languages that we're talking about?
7: L- let me just start off by saying I fully promote functional-typed <laughs> functional languages and um, part of the reason for making those was to help migrate people to typed functional languages uh, and give them a way to practice the style of programming in their day job if they're tied
5: to JavaScript. So um, I had actually kind of tried to take that approach for many years inside of JavaScript, and one of the things that I found was, um, yes, it's beneficial, you can, you can pull it off, but you may find a constant sort of cultural clash with other people that you're contributing with you may, um, in addition to that, you're not going to see all of the benefits until you, I mean, maybe if you overlay flow on top of that, um, you'll start to see a lot of the benefits. But you can't even really fully maximize the benefits um, until you have a static type system that can prove your program is sound and make all these kinds of optimizations, dead code, dead code elimination. Um, so you're, yes, you can get some of the benefits, but I don't think you can get all of them.
2: Yeah, I think Jordan is right. As the uh, this, uh, it, this is something that uh, we don't talk that much when uh, we are talking about language. But uh, what is what's idiomatic in the language is very important because it's uh, if uh, you have the um, you can exercise this discipline. But uh, if you are not, uh, if it's not idiomatic. As soon as you work with a team, uh, you are working with other people. It's very difficult to keep their style. And also the the key word is discipline. That uh, you have to do everything by yourself, and then the compiler is not helping you. When the a compiler like Elm Pure Script or uh, reason uh, F-sharp is helping you, so it's, uh, it's uh, much more difficult that you make mistakes.
4: Um, so, uh, more directly, I actually was specifically doing this uh, <laughs> before switching to Elm. Uh, I, was, I was really doing, like, basically just, like, pretend that we're writing Elm code. Like, don't ever mutate anything. Always use const, you know, wherever possible. Um, and and things like only use functions. Um, and uh, And here's the thing. Um, there's a very concrete case in which discipline is absolutely useless, and it's when you're refactoring. Um, when you have a big chunk of code, and you've been really disciplined about writing it, and now you need to change it, um, if you have a compiler that will say, you know, oh, uh, I. so I, we've done this several times, where we'll take some big chunk of Elm code, we'll, we'll write a, do a big refactor, and... Um, clean up stuff, make the API nicer. And then afterwards, compiler was like, you missed this thing, you missed this thing, you missed this thing, and then you forgot this piece of code that you haven't touched in six months. Discipline totally does not help you there. Um, Tests can help you there, but the problem with tests when you're doing a big refactor is that usually the first thing that happens when you do a gigantic refactor is that you break all of your tests, and they don't apply anymore. They're they're now covering code that doesn't exist anymore. and I have never in my entire programming career found a way to have a, as nice a, a refactoring experience as I now do in Elm. No matter how many tests I write, no matter how much discipline I use, there is just absolutely no way to get that experience without a compiler.
0: That's actually really a great point. Thanks for bringing that up. Uh, so we pretty much don't have any more time for another Twitter question, but this one just came in, and I'm really interested in the answer, so I'm gonna ask it anyway. Um, it's from V A M Uh and his question is: Any complaints about debugging slash source maps?
4: Nope.
5: <laughs> <laughs> so uh, when you program with OCaml or Reason, there's two approaches right now. You have BuckleScript, and there's JSL OCaml. JS of OCaml has really great source map support, and so if you open it up inside of your browser, you can browse all your original um, files, and then if you're using the Reason syntax, then Even the Chrome debugger will highlight it correctly, and it will look um, really natural inside of the browser. You can step through, um, and you can now even highlight, you can even hover over some variables and see the values. So um, that's really good. And BuckleScript's strength is that it compiles down, much like PureScript, into very idiomatic JavaScript that's almost one for one, module to module. So even though the source maps aren't there yet, you can can definitely make out what was going in the code, and, and you know exactly what it was referring to in the original.
2: Yeah, Fable also compiles to various standards JavaScript uh, or check lines that uh, JavaScript uh, you can be proud of. And uh, yeah, we have also source maps that uh, they are uh, a present form uh, uh, Babel, because yeah, it's also another thing that Babel is doing for us.
3: Yeah, we have uh, source maps in PureScript as well, actually. Um, and, and again, uh, like you say, saying, Jordan, uh, you know, if the if the translation is sort of simple enough, then often you don't find you need them. Actually, I've never used the source map feature in PureScript when I'm using PureScript as a developer. Um, but I think that's more because uh, you know, in in functional languages, we have other tools for debugging, right? So I tend to sort of use the REPL uh, much more than I would, you know, actually use a Chrome debugger or something. If I if I uh, if I really sort of need to dig in and go line by line, then I'll use the Chrome debugger, and, and that works fine. But uh, in a pure functional language, you have the benefit of using a REPL and testing out small ideas and making sure these things all work. And then, if the small things work, you know they should compose and the large things work, right? Um, so, uh, yes, we can. You know, we can have nice debugging tools, but also we have we enable. You know, we can enable these other sort of nice, nice debugging tools that you might have in other languages as well.
5: And also, <laughs> the, the joke is that uh, if if you're using an ML derivative language like this, then if it compiles, it works, and you should never need a debug.
4: <laughs>
2: yeah
4: uh, yeah uh, it, it's funny because like uh, when I used to do CoffeeScript all the time I really liked source maps, because it meant that when my code threw runtime exceptions then I could see you know where where the culprit was but now I just don't get runtime exceptions so it doesn't really <laughs> come up as much um, but yeah uh, elm obviously uh, has a lot of um uh, like a, a long history of, of awesome debugging tools uh so like the, the time-traveling debugger and stuff like that, um, that uh, are not necessarily like integrated with the browser so much as they are separate standalone tools. Um, but uh, currently, the Elm Reactor, the, like the time-traveling debugger, um, is not as awesome as it once was, but the next release uh, is, is looking to make it even more awesome than before, and I'm so unbelievably excited about what that debugging experience is gonna be like. I can't wait. <laughs>
0: Cool, well, um, thank you so much, everybody, for uh, answering. I'm afraid that we are running out of time, so we need to get into our links tips, or our, to our tips and picks and closing up the show. Uh, this has been super awesome. Um, so thank you, thank you, thank you. Let's go ahead and we'll get into our uh, tips and picks. Dan, I think you need to to head out, so why don't you go first?
1: Yeah, so uh, I only have one uh, big Which is just a shameless plug. Uh, So, I was working for the past uh, several weeks uh, on something called Create React App. And I think this is a tool that lets you get started with. React environment very quickly that includes like Webpack and Bubble and ESLint and all the stuff that people usually use in like production projects, but it's still very developer-friendly because it doesn't have any configs, so there's like literally zero configuration. You just run a command, uh, npm start, and your, your app runs. So uh, check it out, it's on React blog, it's the, the, the last entry in the blog, create uh, React apps with no configuration, and let us know what you think.
0: Awesome. Cool. Um, Brian, do you want to go next? He says no. Pam. <laughs> yeah, I
7: don't, I, don't, I don't really need to talk
0: about
6: it. <laughs> uh, okay. Sure, so I've got one ready. Um, so, uh, re- well, one, Create React app is definitely awesome, so uh, good work, Dan. Uh, so I'm actually also picking, uh, this is actually a minimal closure script template, um, so mys or mees, um, but uh, in case uh, you heard from all these great language creators and you said, but what about ClojureScript? Uh, you can go try the ClojureScript simply. Um, it's nice because it uh, solves that problem giving you somewhere to start um, and uh, to try it out and mess with it.
0: My keyboard just like decided to not connect, uh, so <laughs> I got it. Um, sweet, I'll go next. Um, so first my tip is check out uh, the uh, JavaScript Air episode page for this episode uh, probably by tomorrow, because all of the tips and picks that Brian didn't say will be on there. <laughs> so, there and there are a couple of really good ones there. So, uh, my picks, my first one is React 30, episode six, Origins of React. We actually talked with Jordan um, about how React got started. It's really an interesting episode, so I recommend you check it out. Uh, Midwest JS is a conference that I'm gonna be speaking at next week and giving a workshop as well. There's tic- uh, tickets still available, it's in Minneapolis. It's a great conference, this is their third year. I've been, uh, previous two years, it's great. Um, and then f- I have uh, two front end master's workshops next week that I'm super stoked about and I've spent countless hours preparing for. So um, if you're interested in Webpack or um, doing open source libraries uh, in JavaScript, then uh, come to those, it'll be awesome. And then finally, tonight I'm going to a musical called Ragtime. It's like an amazing musical. I've never seen the play, but the music is totally beautiful. Um, and yeah, just a really, really good commentary on the uh, civil rights movement, and just like, yeah, very, very, very great. Um, and by civil rights, it's it's not like Martin Luther King Jr. or anything, but it's um, older time than that. It's, it's a great musical. You should check it out. Um, cool. So uh, Alfonso, why don't you go next?
2: OK, sorry. Yeah, so uh, the first link is uh, just the Fable's website. So it's, uh, you, can, you can check the link, or you can, you can just Google Fable compiler and you'll get there. And uh, there you have the samples, you have uh, samples, online samples, you have the docs, uh, you have also the link to the GitHub repo. So, a uh, very brief, brief instruction on how to download uh, everything from NPM and get it started. So, I think it's a, it's a very good starting point. Then we have Fsharp for Fun and Profit, which is a, a site for learning Fsharp in general, because uh, as uh, we already commented, Fsharp is a general language. It's not only for compiling to JavaScript. And this is very good uh, place, because it's uh, focused, uh, we were talking before, if uh, you are coming from JavaScript background, maybe another object-oriented programming or, or dynamic programming, this is uh, this for people who are new to functional programming, and, uh, and I like it very much. And uh, the last, uh, the peak or uh, the last link is the Ionide, which is a plugin for Atom and uh, Visual Studio Code editors to use F# and things. That if, you're not, if you're not on Windows or, or you're not using uh, Visual Studio, which is the, the big tool to to develop in F#, I think it's the, the, the perfect choice. But uh, we have uh, there are also uh, plugins for Beam and Emacs for F#.
0: Awesome, Jordan. Why don't we have you go next?
5: All right, a couple of things. Um, check out the book, Real World OCaml. It's free online, and you can order a hard copy of it as well. Um, I didn't write the book or anything. I just am a huge fan of it, and it teaches languages and the statically-type functional programming languages that we're talking about here. Um, so check that out. It's free. The other thing is, um, if you're using Atom, I really recommend that you use the Vim Mode Plus program, uh, plugin. It's really good. Um, it should be the default, really. It should be the official one. Um, and the developer is super responsive, and he uh, responds to bug bug reports really quickly, fixes them, and takes um, user feedback. So yeah, check that out.
0: Huh. Awesome, um, Phil. Why don't we have you go next?
3: Yeah, sure. Uh, so I have a couple of picks. Uh, the first one I just wanted to point to the PureScript website. Uh, so it's purescript.org. Um, so for anyone interested, uh, you know, it has all the links to all the resources. So things like uh, Module documentation um, and you know language guides, the links in the book, all these sorts of things. Um, and the second one, I just wanted to sort of highlight a library from the ecosystem. Um, so the one I chose is called PureScript Pucks, uh, which is a uh, a UI uh, library that's really nice. It's sort of an implementation of um, I guess it's sort of a combination takes inspiration from Redux but also the Elm architecture uh, from Elm. Um, and it's really nice, you know, it has a lot of these uh, tools that we that we mentioned before,
0: like the the time-traveling debugger, these
3: sorts of things. Um, So yeah, that's what we're checking out. Great, and
4: Richard. Cool, Uh, I want to start by seconding Jordan's endorsement for Adam with Vim Mode Plus, big fan. Um, uh, OK, so I mentioned uh, Elm in action, uh, available for uh, early release now. Um, The Frontend Masters two-day Elm workshop that I'm doing. Uh, So uh, two picks. one is uh, a video six months of Elm in production, and that's basically back when we had only been using Elm for six months in production. Uh, just, just sort of like a, a recap of our experiences and like lessons learned and uh, things like that. Um, uh, building a live validated sign-up form in Elm. So this is a post that assumes only JavaScript knowledge, no functional programming knowledge, no Elm knowledge, and just takes you through start to finish building a live validated sign-up form that uses AJAX to validate username and stuff like that. Um, uh, tip. I, I only have one tip, which is Don't wait for a rewrite. Introduce incrementally, build a small thing that works, get that small thing in production, whatever language you're using, um, then expand from there. So, uh, that would be my advice. Also, I I have to mention, uh, we're hiring at No Red Ink, and uh, if you're interested in uh, using Elm, we don't need people to know Elm on day one, we will teach you, so uh, please apply.
0: Great, great, all right. Um, so that's our show. Thank you very much, everybody, for coming. Let me just give a couple closing announcements. Um, so we ha- do have silver sponsors. We're grateful for React JS program. Um, it's a great uh, master the React e- ecosystem site. And uh, Sentry is cross-platform crash reporting. So check them out. Um, and then if you have suggestions for uh, the show guests and um, or topic ideas, go to jsair.io/suggest, um, and that'll take you to a form. And then jsair.io slash feedback uh, for you to submit feedback on um, this show or like the show in general or past shows. Really appreciate the feedback. And then jsair.io slash email will take you to a place where you can see our previous newsletters and sign up for the newsletter. Uh, We do like highlights from the show and stuff. Um, And then next week, again, we're going to talk about how to be a mentor, and so I recommend you watch that. It'll be great. Um, and then, yeah, that's pretty much it. So thanks, everybody. Really appreciate uh, you coming on the show. And uh, we'll see you all later.
2: Thank you, everybody.
4: Thanks a lot, Ken. Bye. Bye.